0: Welcome to True Health Live. We explore and acknowledge basic truths in public health. If you're a student or a public health professional or just plain curious about public health in general, then this is the place for you. Join us. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of True Health Live. So today we are chatting with us so i'm your host Lisa Sully, and we have with us
1: introduce yourself
2: precious me. hello
1: <laughs> anishka gopila good morning or afternoon yeah. wherever you may be <laughs>
0: right we're starting a little bit late so we may not be on facebook um but that's okay um we can put the show on there so but we are on YouTube and um today we were going to be joined by a special guest host Dr. Amina Ali who's the founder of Fire um, which stands for the Federation of International Gender and Human Rights. And unfortunately, she's not able to make it uh, right now. So if she's able to come in, we'll just pull her into the show. Um, she has a lot of like information on her program and organization and what they do. They're global and they work um, with a lot of maternal health issues around the world and especially in um, poverty stricken countries. So I want to make sure like she's able to, and if she's not able to come, because it is a live show, then we'll just make sure we reschedule uh, Dr. Ali for another date. But we're going to keep the show going, and we're going to talk today a bit about health disparities, or disparities in maternal and reproductive health. So we're keeping on our series of um, maternal health for this summer. So... Disparities. What does that mean? So it really just means differences um, between select groups or certain groups of populations. And usually when we're talking about disparities, it does uh, trickle trickle into the um, health equity space, right? Because if we had equity in spaces, we would not see the disparities that we do at the rates that we do. So we're talking about those things in maternal and reproductive health and specifically, um, and I said reproductive because some of these things, they, 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 they mingle, right, you know? So we're going to be talking about um, fibroids um, and how women of color are, you know, at higher risk for fibroids or they get them at higher rates. Also, um, access to care and, um, you know, the differences in access to care and how that affects how you can address, you know, medical issues. Um, and also, um, oh my goodness, we just talked about this before, ladies. We did. We're doing fibroids, access to care, and also talking about like the high mortality and morbidity rates among um, Black and Brown women when it comes to maternal health. So let me just start off with like a few things about um, fibroids, right? Because it, it it's interestingly enough, enough They're not uncommon amongst a lot of uh, women, especially women of color. So for those of you who don't know, like what are fibroids? So uterine fibroids are tumors made up of muscle cells and other tissue that grow within the wall of the uterus. Um, And sometimes they can be like on the inner wall, um, like inside the womb. And sometimes they can be what you call like interstitial, which is like, inside the wall itself so like not actually like in the the space that is the womb but on the other side like in that muscle tissue um they can you know cause wreak havoc like block your fallopian tubes which is why um you know a lot of women um experience who have fibroids experience fertility issues they can um really block uh the egg from traveling you know and so some of the symptoms that you get um you know, can be like heavy or painful periods, bleeding between periods, pain during sex, feeling pressure in the abdomen, right? Like uh, pelvic pressure. Um, often you um, may urinate, often because of that pressure, there's probably the fibroids can be really large and like pushing on the bladder. Um, there have been women who've had fibroids, like, you know, as big as golf balls, grapefruits, you know, they can range and vary in um, size. Other symptoms are um, pain during sex, lower back pain, and obviously fertility issues when it comes to um, reproductive health. Uh, Multiple miscarriages, uh, early onset labor, they're all different um, signs and symptoms of fibroids. Now, that doesn't mean that some women are not able to, you know, um, I don't want to say like deal with, like what is a good word? Like, you know, they're able to... um, have uh, fibroids, and, and still have successful uh, pregnancies and successful births. Um, but it is something that is, uh, you know, it's a, a point of, um, of, it's a sensitive point And it's something that a lot of women deal with sometimes silently, and, and it prevents them from, you know, becoming mothers, it prevents them from being in that maternal space, right. So you know, it's really good to like, know your body. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And like, you know, then we're going to move into that access space because why is it that women of color are more susceptible to fibroids? Right? You know, some of it may be food. There's a lot of things, stress, a lot of things that are happening with our bodies, and then you know, are we less likely to get them checked out? Um, you know, you know, do whatever we need to do to um, um, address them. You know, some people, you know, they don't want invasive surgery. Sometimes it's a little bit more, you know, some people want to take different methods to shrink them, which, um, you know, has happened with some people. Um, So I want to, like, start with that, ladies, and then we can kind of, like, segue into the space where we talk about, like, you know, that access to care and, like, dealing with the Mm
2: fibroids. Yeah, Yeah, so... um... I think your introduction was really, really helpful, right? To, to first kind of even make a distinction. And I wish we had a, an image that we can pull up on the screen. Um, because oftentimes, unless you have a physician or an OBGYN who's helping you get a visual picture of what, when, when you're told that you have fibroids, where they are in proximity to where um, your uterus and ovaries are. Sometimes it can be really hard to imagine, right? Um, because even the image that we're shown of the uterus isn't quite the way the uterus is actually sitting um, in us. So it can be challenging. Uh, just something to keep in mind, and, and I'm just looking at my notes here, is that um, depending on being being aware of where your fibroids, if you have fibroids, where they're located um, and what organs are near that area. So if your, if your fibroids tend to be kind of um, towards the top of the uterus, then you would imagine that you would be, considering where your uterus sits, right, which is right below the belly button and before the, the sit bone area, right, that area of your lower tummy, um, it can impact, depending on where the tumors are and their size and shape, they could impact, you know, as Deidre said, your, your back, your lower back, um, but even your bladder, uh, and your colon, um, it could have an impact on your, uh, your motility, right? So sometimes if you suffer from chronic constipation and yeah, we're going to have to get into the weeds of it, right? Um, it could, it could be your diet. Yes. But depending on where the, those tumors are seated, they can be impacting and, and contorting your colon in such a way that um, it's making it more difficult for you to eliminate, which means you have to change and adjust your diet accordingly. Um, As well as the same goes for the bladder. If you notice that, if you know you have fibroids and you're getting older or you're um, gestating, you may notice that you have um, more frequency to urinate or even incontinence at times, pressure incontinence. Um, those also you just know that can be directly correlated with having fibroid tumors and just really knowing their position is in size is really, really important.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, um, I was reading like, you know, fibroids, they can grow as like a single tumor or they can grow in like um, clusters. So mm-hmm. like, you know, your point like depending on like what's happening how it's expanding you know it could cause a lot of problems and some you know a lot of the times here's the other thing um I think it's like a a little over 70 percent of women may have the condition and not know it and maybe because it's not sitting in that space where you're getting pressure or maybe people are not necessarily paying to the paying attention or close attention to the symptoms right so um or or they can be really small, you know, and there have been situations like you know doctors will say, um, okay, we're just gonna watch it, you know, and they're not that big, so let's just watch them but then there's maybe there's no no discussion about like what to change, right, like what could what could have brought them about what to change, maybe change your diet, maybe think about how much sugar, how much salt you're taking, how much processed foods, you know um you need uh and not just diet, but also exercise. So you know that discussion
2: definitely needs to happen. yeah, stress as well. and, and yeah and stress, stress contributes. um you know, there's the idea of what you swallow, right? Like we take things <laughs> in and on, and you 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 even say, i'm'm I'm, I'm gonna swallow this one, right? But you're thinking that it means you're just not gonna you're gonna let that pass. Um, but recognize that you did swallow it. Like think of it as a literal thing. Um, and in doing so, I'm not saying have outbursts, right? When you you insta- in lieu of swallowing, but have outlets. Recognize that when you're repressing emotion and allowing stress to kind of pile on, it piles on in, in your in your womb as as women, you know, in your seat of creation, as as some call it. Uh, yeah.
1: I agree. It's I I I don't personally have any lived experiences with fibroids, but I have friends and family members who have, um, and just them sharing their stories with me, like all of this is informative and it makes so much sense what you said, Precious, because that is definitely true. Um, just us taking on a lot of stressors and not realizing the internal uh, impact that it's making on us, right? Um, but that piece that Deidre mentioned about, um, you know, sometimes not even knowing or not being conscious of the, the symptoms. Um, I think it is so imperative that we keep in mind that we need to stay on the top of our, at the top of our health um, and hold ourselves accountable to go see our doctors and make those annual appointments with the OBGYN and even your primary care physician um, and really just hone in on our bodies um, just to kind of see like how things are changing really make a um, an effort to see what changes happen as your life you know changes and day to day changes so these things we can kind of try and um, identify earlier rather than later and when the doctors say, oh so small you know it's nothing to worry about I for one I don't take that. And run with that at all. <laughs> I don't care how small it is; it exists, right? So, therefore, let's 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 talk about it. If you think it's not, um, it's no harm. I I still have questions, and I want to know. Well, how did it even get here? If it's not harmful, how did it get here? Like you said, Deidre, and what do I do to get rid of it? Since it's not harmful now, then let's try to get rid of it um, instead of just watching it. Because if you're watching it, that means time is moving and therefore things, it's giving it space for something to happen, right? And for it to grow and so forth. Um, so let's try to get rid of it and make sure it stays um, off the grid for me or it no longer exists. But I think um, just having an understanding Being able to um, ask questions and follow ups with your doctors, um, if you need a second opinion, if you just feel uneasy about the responses you're getting, Um, and for me, it'd be like that one saying, "Let's watch, let's not do anything." Um, It's like, no, I want to do something, and or I need to just know more and be more educated on what's happening here with my body, Um, what caused it, how I can get rid of it. If I can't get rid of it, how do I treat it? Um, so that this is manageable and I can handle it and not let it worsen. Um, so I think um, just being conscious of all of that stuff and being able to um, clearly speak about it and, and and advocate for yourself is very important. And when we see changes in our, in our body and in our day-to-days, it's very important to bring it to our provider's attention um, because you may think it's nothing, but when you express it and then, and because they're medically trained, they can probably identify certain things that we can't as people that aren't trained in that way.
0: You know what? Then I was thinking like, you know, people may be thinking or listeners may be thinking like who um, who gets them, right? So we're talking about, um, we know that black and brown women suffer from them more. So that's one. Um, and specifically, um, melanin dominant, so African-American, though, you know, people who fit into that category, African-American or black American, um, whatever you decide to identify as, but women in that group are three to five times at a greater risk than their white counterparts. Um, and then the interesting thing, the other group that's classified as high risk for fibroids are women who are overweight, um, uh, overweight or obese for their height, you know, based on uh, by BMI, body mass index, um, they're also at a slightly higher risk. Um, Another interesting point is that women who have had children and and we are talking about women in childbearing years. So these are the women we're talking about. Um, If you're not yet in childbearing years or you're past that, you know, there's there's a different story. But um, women who are in childbearing years, but if they've given birth, they um, sometimes they they're most likely at a lower risk for fibroids. So I thought that that was interesting. It, it's kind of like if you're utilizing your womb, then these things won't happen, almost right? Um, I haven't done yet the research on how many women who have given birth um, and then develop fibroids afterwards, um, but we can definitely find that out and put that in the description box. Um, but I just thought that that was really interesting because the womb is meant to hold life. And you know, it's kind of like if you used it to hold life, then you are you're good, right? Um, but if not, and you wait a little longer and also again, yes, based on very practical things like what we eat, what we do, you know, the stress levels, like this may happen. Um, and the other thing that I thought was interesting when we talk about like women who are at higher risk and it's obesity. Then we have to kind of look at like okay, well, um, are Black women or African American women also um, more likely to be obese or overweight, and could that also be contributing to their higher risk of fibroids? You know, when compared to other um, racial and ethnic groups. So I thought that that was interesting. Any thoughts on that, please?
2: Yes, um, I I too uh, thought it was very interesting. That one of the um markers, if you will, for high probability for fibroids was um having less than two children. I was like whoa that's that's interesting um but it you know it reminds me of of what we had shared. I think it was um the last time we recorded or or maybe it was about a month ago um where both myself and alia were acknowledging that while we um gestated with fibroids our babies in the womb you know in utero they kind of move things out of their way right and create a space um so in my mind i'm like you know nothing scientific at all right 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 there. um nothing scientific at all but just very anecdotally kind of my mind went to wow, well, okay like you point out, when you're using your womb as it's intended, you know, um, and taking that opportunity in your in what is the prime years of one's life, um, it's all a part of that that your life cycle and what's what's required of our body. You know, it's kind of like you you're taking in the right food, so then your body is preserved in the right ways for healthy health and the longevity health health and longevity so it was just just an anecdotal observation um and it's interesting that you 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 noticed that as well so yeah less than 2 apparently it kind of is one of those markers and the other thing that i wanted to share is that um uterine fibroids uh occur in about 70% of women um in general but unfortunately that's disproportionately um melanated women yeah
1: that's so interesting the um, that less than two children, because that that's like news, right? And you're like, I'm like, I only have one, <laughs> right? And then I'm also older, right? And so it's like all of all of this is good information. And like I said, it's it's we have to educate ourselves, and it it can be scary, right? It can be so scary because you're like you're learning about these new things about your body, and then you're um, and you're wondering, okay what can I do? And for the, for those who do have fibroids, um, I know a girlfriend who has such a hard time. um, And it's been years that she's been diagnosed with them. And it's, I feel so bad for her when it's time for her cycle um, and the pain that she goes through and and whatnot. And I'm like, what can I do to help? How can I help? And it's, it's, it's just something that you know you can be as supportive as you can as a as a friend, but you can't really be you know all all, all in and say, okay, I, I have the magic antidote here to to take all of this away um but you guys just keep keep sharing the information and I'm going to disperse it,
2: yeah, no, I think you touching on the symptomology is also really important, right so let's we can go through some of. Of some of what the symptoms are. I think each person is so unique and different. Um, some can have very large uh, fiber tumors and be mildly asymptomatic, aside from heavy, heavy bleeding during their cycle time. But to just list off a few, um, definitely the, the heavy, heavier bleeding, particularly when the fiber tumors are larger. Um, and something to, I guess, be aware of is that um, they feed, right? They eat. They're eating. Um, And so the question is, what do they like? And um, Deidre touched on some of the things. It's the sugar, it's the dairy, but really it's the sugar in the dairy that, that they like. Right. Right. It is also the stress um, because it kind of puts your body uh, in a different, in a different place, if you will, um, hormonally. Uh, It's also um, you have to consider I know we're always on the food thing and, and I, and I never want it to come off as like browbeating or, or judgy, but there's so much that we need that is, that ails us, that is directly connected to what we're putting in our mouth. Um, mm-hmm. That if we begin to even just remove one thing at a time, if you say, Hmm, that sounds interesting sugar. Okay, well, I know when I'm stressed, I know when I'm PMSing, I consume lots more sugar. Just try maybe cutting back and seeing how your body responds to that cutback. Um, but there's, as far as symptoms, heavy bleeding, pain during um, intercourse, painful cycles, um, fatigue, anemia. And the anemia, of course, is connected to the the, the heavy bleeding. Um yeah, th- those are just a few. Those are just a few. <laughs> yeah. Um, Did you say pain? Like the meaning like pain during sex? Both. Pain during oh. sex and then also painful, painful cramping during your cycle.
0: Yeah. 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 And you know what? Not to like deviate, but like this is where I'm talk really quickly about like um, period stuff. Yeah. Um, This is why I think it's really good, like, the cup. And I only recently started using it this year. Um, Such a great move. Because, like, it's really awesome to be able to see your volume, right? Mm -hmm. When you're using, like, pads. And I'm all for, like, reusable things because I also use um, the panties, right? Right. Um and, and it just also feels better, it feels more natural than walking around with a diaper on. I, I really felt like just walking around with a diaper. Even though even if I was using like tampons, right? It just was like I I never truly felt secure with a tampon. So I would always reinforce with um a pad. But when you do you can't really tell, right, what your volume is. Like you can tell, like you you know your body, like if you're light, heavy, medium, you know. Um And, um, but I will say like using the cup really put things into perspective with like how much is actually coming out. And usually the cups are about like 20 milliliters and it's like, oh, like that's what like, and so you, you measure yourself, like, you know, throughout the day, you can actually see like what's coming out because then it's not just absorbed into, um, you know, the pad or whatever, if you're using organic material into the cotton or or whatever the material is that the pad or the tampon is made out of, you can actually see in a cup, you can see like the color of your blood, like while it's all together, you can see like, you know, if there are clots, you know, things like that. And of course you can see like when you, when you stand up and you turn around and look back, look down. But like, I thought that it was such, um, it was like such a breath of fresh air, like even though we're not even like in that space, but like just to know what's happening and to see it with like a, from a different um, angle, like what's happening. So like, um, so like relating that back to like the fibroids and like knowing like what your cycle is doing, it's good to see, you can see what heavy is, you know, if you're overflowing the cup and they're supposed to be able to last for about eight hours, I think. Um, that's heavy, you know, that, that, that's heavy. Um, and, and don't get me wrong. We all have our like things cause I'm not sitting for eight hours, <laughs> but you know, um, but at least like, you know, when you're going to like switch out and change, you can see what's happening. But like, you know, within that, if you're constantly like overflowing, like more than once, then that's really heavy. And like, you know, that maybe needs to get checked out. The other thing is sometimes heavy light and medium can be relative based on just like the person. So, you know, I do want to acknowledge that. Um, but it's always good to just see what's coming out of your body, like know what's happening. So I just wanted to put that little plug and I'm like, yeah, about the you, you know, it helps to like, because it goes into that part, right? Because your period is also reproductive health. So that goes into do it as well.
1: I agree, Deidre. Um, Even before, like I've never utilized the cup, but, Going to look into it now that you mention it. (laughs) Um, But I always found it interesting and I always like to see what, like, because it's like, I don't know, it just made me feel more empowered and made me want to learn more about my body when I would see, you know, what the color looked like, what, you know, are there blood clots? Why are there blood clots? Like things like that. And I was just always interested since I was a young girl um, to find out more and why, you know, our body's letting this you know, all these things out and the way that it comes out. So I, I agree totally. Um, Just to kind of know, you know, what our body is, is um, ridding itself of. And so therefore we can kind of see what's coming out and then that can um, help you ask certain questions, you know? Um, And so, uh, yeah, I completely understand what you're saying.
2: Ask questions and make adjustments. Right? Um, I'll never forget. Uh, I I would I, I tend to fast a lot, right? Um, and I was in a fasting phase of, of my of the year, um, but I also had a a doctor's appointment, and so I went to the appointment and I said, Oh shoot! I probably should tell them because I'm thinking, Oh, my blood works might be off because I've been like fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actively fasting. And so the nurse, and this was a, a new physician, and um, he incorporated some some homeopathy or homeopathic. So, so he took a lot more blood than normal. Um, and his his text says she was on like the fourth or fifth violin. She says, um, "Are you drinking enough?" And and I might have been doing a dry test. So she goes, "Are you drinking enough water?" And. I says, how, how, why do you ask? She says, I can tell the way your blood, the way your blood looks and is coming out. I can tell that you're not drinking enough water right now. And I says, yeah, I I should have mentioned, um, it was, and, and you could see, she showed me in the vial, like she showed me someone else's. And she says, you see, it was, it was more fluid. It was more wet. Because my body was fasting and more dry, my blood was thicker and more goopy inside the tube. That was very interesting to me because I want to connect that back to observing or being able to or making the choice to observe what your body is secreting monthly. Yeah. That is, it's, it's there to tell you something. It's there to show you something. Um, it shouldn't be super, super dark it shouldn't be brown it shouldn't be almost black um think about when you're when you when when you see someone cut it's red um and that really speaks to the health or the lack thereof or vitality so it's really important that we we, we choose to look at these things right and have these conversations because i know there may be some that are cringing like what are they talking about <laughs> and, um, when i was introduced to the idea of the cup i'm like what no number one it's plastic right that was my biggest reason i said no why would i put plastic in me Uh um but once i once i you know got past that and just understood the the pluses outweigh the minuses the biggest thing for me was uh thinking that i was uh moderate on the moderate scale, right between low and heavy, um, but almost appreciating that that wasn't even true. Um, when I looked at the quantity, I would—that's it, because this would be pads upon pads all day long. But when you see it outside of uh, in a cup, it's it's a very different observation. So um,
0: yeah,
2: I, I would definitely, definitely advocate. Um, even for, uh, I wouldn't say, um, youth and, you know, young ladies entering into their cycle, but definitely, uh, by teen, by 16, 17, I, as a mother, um, and as someone who educates young girls, I would definitely advocate that they become, number one, it helps you become more, more familiar and more comfortable with your body and with your body when you're, when you're cycling, which tends to be a time for us to ignore ourselves a bit more out of, oh, what is this? But really, it should be a time for us to go within and pay attention to what, what's happening a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 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 It's the plus. It wanted...
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. And you could reinforce it with the panties. I, I like to do that. Yes. yes. It's yes. so yes. natural. I just like chill out when it's, it's like, I just, you don't even feel like you have anything on I mean of course you have on underwear but like it's just not the same as like the tampon slash pad combination or just the pad it's just yeah. amazing <laughs> like I like yeah it's I love it I like it. but yeah. I wanted to kind of circle back around because I know we said we were going to do a few things but like the fibroid conversation is very interesting mm-hmm. I wanted to circle back around to the idea of um you know, who gets it and, and, um, black women, um, black or African-American women tend to get them more. But we also know that the other group is people who are obese. So when we're talking about like obesity, so I want to like circle back around to that. Um, when it comes to obesity, black and African American people are at the highest, you know, the entire rate for obesity like u.s obesity prevalence it's it's not half the population as of yet but i think we're we're getting there it's over 40 percent, right and so in that 40 percent of people who are um considered overweight and obese um african americans like are at the top top of the list top of the list um so some of that is um we have to think that you have to, you know, imagine that there's a correlation between um, black and brown women being obese and being at risk for fibroids, obese or overweight, and being at risk for fibroids. So we have to like really be mindful of those things, um, and um, and and realize like the truisms. This is true health life, right? So realize some of the truisms of that. So what are the things that, and we, and maybe we don't answer that question today. Maybe that's another show. But what are some of the things that we can do um, in communities to address that issue? So it's like some, it's like when something's happening, you know, it can't just be like, and we know this, right? In public health, you know, most times, you know, these the symptoms are addressed, addressed, and that's why we have to get to the preventative part. And there are definitely a lot of people who recognize obesity as an issue in, you know, certain communities, um, specifically Black and African-American communities. So it's like address some of the things that are happening, address the nutrition, address um, which gets to the, you know, obesity. And then you address that. And then you, you see the changes in other areas where, you know, there are health issues, you know, it's like get to the bottom. And like you said, Precious, like not to like keep going to the food but it is a serious mm-hmm. issue you press it affects everything so it's like what you're putting into your body it definitely um shows on the external or you know it shows up um with um um disease on the internal you know so it's you you have to be mindful of what you're putting in because what you put in what you put in will manifest into something if you put in positive things what manifests is positive. If you put in things that are negative and not so good for your body, what will manifest as negative? So we have to think about like origin points. It really is about origin points.
1: That's very true. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> I, I just wanted to tap into what did you was saying. Um, yeah, like with... It starts at home, right? It starts from when we're young and what our parents feed us, and the habits we develop because we carry that throughout our lives. Um, and then also, when you're old enough to make wiser decisions, and you're more conscious and more knowledgeable of, you know, of food and how how what it is that we're taking in, how it affects us, um, short term and long term, then you start making better decisions. Um, and since this is True Life um, Health. I have to be honest, like, it, it, it's, it's hard, like, because with my culture, with our culture, like, you know, everything is so rich. It's like, you know, the rices and all the carbs and, you know, it, and for me, it's like, I feel incomplete if I don't have rice every day. <laughs> I really do. And, um... And I have friends that I grew up with that are like they are they. It's known, and you have to have rice. And if anything, if Anishka needs to have some kind of rice, so don't just have X Y Z. Make sure you have rice. And that's like an ongoing thing. And I, I we laugh at it, but um, it makes you really think though, like that's what I grew up on. And so it became a, a habit for me and it brought me comfort. And so even in my adult life, you know, you try to make better decisions. And what I realized though, is I don't have to have large amounts, right? So knowing how to portion your foods your and your intakes really can help you. Um, and I always believe like nutrition is, is key. But you don't have to torment. You don't have to go torture yourself um, to stay healthier. Like some people think, diet means you have to have all these nasty things, or you can't cook with any seasoning and so forth. But that's not necessarily true. Do what works for you, where you still have, feel like you're living an enriched life, you, that you're still um, enjoying the simple things. Because you don't want it where you feel like you're torturing yourself, where you're where you're unhappy, and you're getting all these you know, symptoms, headaches, and things like that, because then that is discouraging. Um, so do start off small, right? Do what you can when you can, and gradually change that habit. And so I think that's very, very important. And also, what we change with self and as our individual selves, our family and those around us will start seeing it and you can start implementing it with with your own family. And it's hard. Like as a mom, if I have to make two separate dinners, that is I'm like, what, what? <laughs> like like it, it's a lot to do, especially when you're a working mom, especially when your job is not a typical nine to five. And then you're an entrepreneur to, to, on the side as well. So it's like a lot of things. So you wear all these different hats and you're responsible for all these moving pieces. And then to think when it comes to um, you know, your household and and, and making sure everyone stays he- as healthy as possible, I have to make two lunches, two dinners, two breakfasts. That is very discouraging. And that's like, oh, whatever. And quite often people are like, well, just grab this, just grab that. And I think what we need to do is know as we're changing our our, our, our habits the family needs to help. You, They need to be a part of that, right? It needs to be a decision. And so if I'm making like X, Y, and Z, and this is what we're going to eat, we're all going to eat it, right? And so it's it has to be a team effort and collective effort. Um, and that's how we create change. Um, that's how like, if, if the... Projected image was like, okay, this is this is what we're leading into because look at our family, look our grandmas were, were were obese or our grandfathers, our parents, and so forth, and nothing has changed when it comes to the intake of food and and we're carrying those same habits. Um, mm-hmm. Then we can kind of see what what the future looks like for us, right? Unless we we make the decision to say, "Hey, I'm going to change that narrative because it's going to stop right here," right? Like so, we've done that. We see where it's going to go. I've been happy with it, but now I know I don't have to be miserable in this in this journey. I can make it work for me. I can make it work for mine, and we're gonna do this. and your kids will be able to implement that at an earlier stage than you did, right? And so then you can change what that trajectory looks like. Um, but it does have to, you do have to acknowledge it. At one, it starts with you just acknowledging, okay, there needs to be a change, and how am I going to implement this where it works for me um, and not dreams all the happiness of food, you know, <laughs> Um so that's just my two cents on it. And that's what's working for me. And as I said, I'm, I'm a big food lover. Um, and I cook for my family. And that brings us all together like most families. Um, but just knowing how to how to do it in a healthier way and prepare things in a healthier way and make certain changes. And it's not going to happen overnight. It'll take time. It can be trial and error. But at least you're trying and on a better path.
0: Yeah, and there are definitely different programs to help people do that. This is why, like, I'm so in support of, like, farmer's markets to encourage, mm-hmm. like, fresh vegetables and things and less processed you know, right. So And some of it is just, like, remove the processed foods or, you know, slowly reduce until you can eliminate, right, the processed foods. Yeah. You know, it's hard to pay- on region right depending on where you are in the country and and what what's available and this kind of moves us into like the access the same way that certain things aren't accessible some people don't necessarily have the same access to like health care you know so when it comes to you know making you know having checkups about um your maternal or your reproductive health the access is not there because, you know, maybe transportation is bad. Maybe I don't have a way, you know, to get there. Like transportation is a big thing, big thing, big thing, you know, even in a place like New York city, you know, not all uh, in, which has like one of the most massive, like transit infrastructures in, in the world. Um, not every single part and, Anushka, you can speak to this. It's okay, you precious. Not every single inch of each borough, especially the outer boroughs, um, have um, access to that. Some of them are transportation deserts, and maybe the only access is the bus. And the buses don't have the same um, movement as the trains, right? They also Mm -hmm. don't move as quickly as the trains. So um, you know, and not everybody has a car. You know, not even that. It doesn't even have to be how you get to where you're going. Well, it it is, but like maybe like um, some of that issue is because like of um, insurance issues, or you you know the health center or clinic or wherever you go is further away from you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everybody does have the money to go to, um, a place that's, you know, part of a big fancy health system. And while, you know, some of those, uh, health systems are trying to, you know, um, move into meeting people where they're at. And there's, you know, so many different programs and things that they do, um, um, and incentive programs to make sure that they're trying to reach people, there are their gaps and people get lost in in the cracks and so this is where we have like the access issue some of it is just not even knowing like where their resources are or what resources are available to them and that in in change um um affects access so you know you know moving into the the access space and like knowing where things are Mm -hmm. um that could even be an issue so if, if there's a woman who also doesn't have like that education to know like about what's happening with her body and understand like what the symptoms are for fibroids. Like how is she accessing uh, clinical care or medical care or, or modern medicine in that case, if she does not use any alternative, right? How is she accessing that to help, um, help heal her body? Right.
1: Absolutely. I think, go ahead, precious <laughs> before, um, i like it's it's when you think about access and this it, and i think it doesn't matter how many times we have this conversation i think i feel this in me all the time it, it really it's so frustrating just when you think about all of it right in our communities where we're underrepresented and underserved and there's all these different aspects to t- to consider because like you said the the transportation thing then the just even knowledge itself and being aware of what's out there what you need um, it's just like oh, like we as women of color have to do 10 times more of the work just to to get to this certain point, like we have to educate ourselves. And then it's like, well, let's take a, back, a step back. How do we know to educate ourselves, right? How do we know to ask these questions? How do we know to say who, what organization can I go to that has a particular program, right? Like let, let's say for instance, you're coming from a foreign country and you're just new to America, where do you start, right? Where do you start if you have no one to help guide you? Um, and so, like, from my perspective, um, the the hospitals um, or just the caregivers at some point, I think working in community, um, it's a lot of times that I see, like, you know, we got to get the, these uh, assessments and surveys and needs and all these things. You want to get all this feedback from folks. But what are you doing um, to locate people who really do need all, of the, all these services need to get access to health, need to just simply get health insurance under their belt so that they can have, you know, so they can have have, have access to just a primary care physician who can help them navigate through all the other specialties that, that they probably will need. Like, what are we doing to take the steps um, for preventative medicine and to help folks understand that they, the, here are the different services? Let's start off here with primary care and then... We'll go from there. Um, let's see what's going on in your overall health. And if you need special services, we'll do X, Y, and Z. And here are some programs. Here are some free programs. If you cannot afford it, here's here here's um, this agency. Go here. Talk to this person or, you know, this office. And they will help you navigate through the things that you need to get, um, uh, what's offered to you and what's not offered to you, um, what you're eligible for. And just like a whole breakdown of that. Um because we know, like, if a, clo- a closed mouth doesn't get fed, and so if you don't know what to ask, it's like a no ask, don't, no tell type of thing, and I think in healthcare that is that is just wrong on all levels. Like you have to be forthcoming and you can tell, like I've worked in healthcare, Precious, I know you have as well. Like we we all are in this this space. So you can tell when someone's a little uncertain and doesn't know, but wants to know, or, you know, and you have to just be that person to give that information. What's the sense in keeping it when it can potentially help someone else and then sharing it with them can then help them help others, right? Um, When it comes to transportation, I am happy accessorize exists. <laughs> it didn't exist at one point. Um, there are some flaws still in, in the system but at least it exists. I'm happy to say to see elders be able to have them come and pick them up, take them to and from their doctor's appointments is wonderful. What there are like I said, there are some flaws in that system and things they do need to need to um, address, but the fact that it does, is there and it's um, and you can attain it is is very much I think helpful in the elder community, and also for those who cannot afford to hop on the train or into a cab or Uber or whatever the case may be, because as we know, sometimes our doctors are not in our community. We have to travel externally, um, and on with that, it's like and. and some some doctors some quality doctors are within the community too but we just don't know right because where they're situated you're like oh i don't want to go some people do say i don't want to go there like they think they're too good and you're like mm, you need to go there because though it may not be in your ideal location that doctor will not stare you wrong right? Or that f- f- clinician is not going to stare you wrong. They re- they're here in this particular community, in this location, because they care, genuinely care about the patients. And because they more, chances are, they probably come from that community and want to give back. And so it's like all these different things to take in perspective um, and try to figure it out. And as I had said before, it's easy for us to have this conversation because we're at stages in our lives now that we are knowledgeable and we do have access and we can share that with others um but when we think back and scale back if I think back to generations before me or even to my parents who weren't as knowledgeable it's like again where do you start <laughs> where, where, where do you start so
2: yeah I think that um access is is a huge umbrella and there's lots that kind of fall under that umbrella. And as I was listening to the two of you speak about access, my mind went to cultural competence and how that was the beginning of us even getting to health equity, right? Because I would say 10 years ago in the healthcare, 15 years ago in the healthcare field, it was about being culturally competent, you know, having documentation in language other than English, right? Mm-hmm. Making sure that your staff complement somewhat represented the population that you're serving Um, and it started there and where we've gotten is a lot further although we still have a long way to go right so we're at the point now where we're examining health equity and like in the behavioral health field you have peer-led service delivery systems Um, and peer-led service delivery is similar to what you touched on Anushka that you have providers in your community, and and this is not exactly what peer-led service delivery is, but you have people with lived experience now helping to be an advocate and a proponent for what healthcare should be. Um, And an example of that in the behavioral health side is having um, recipients of service who are in recovery um, work. And advocate and and be a voice as an employee, not as an intern or you know, but actually work and say, listen, this is what I experienced, and these medications worked for me, or this treatment intervention worked for me, um, and this is how it can support you as well. But they also become, or we, those that do that, also become that voice that says, you know, have you considered putting this service? in this area because as Deidre touched on, you know, they're on the outskirts of Queens where the last train station is Jamaica. And, but they're all the way close to long Island and you've got to take two buses to get to where they are. And those buses only run between these hours and these hours, right? Back in the day, it was called the two fare zone. I think with Metro cards, things have changed a bit, but it's kind of like, if you haven't lived there, you don't know and you won't recognize and you can't appreciate what the need is. Mm -hmm. Um, And Deidre, when you touched on lack of access um, and you may have even touched on food deserts or just transportation deserts, the idea of the resources getting to those locations become more logistically challenging as well. Um, So it's not just the, the, the structure itself, but the infrastructure required to support that system can be more restrained because now we've got to go outside of our route to get over here to this one little clinic. Um, that's inconvenient because our workers still have to take public transportation to get to the hub. So you don't think of all of these things um, as a consumer, but also a lot of times as a provider, these considerations aren't being made. Um, so I wanted to just touch on that. And I did want to revisit something regarding food. Um, being being Caribbean, uh, the idea of rice and potato and yam and all of these really heavy, starchy things, they were a staple. But you have to think of what, what we, what our elders, what they did for a living. You know, when I talk to my grandmother, who's 86, and she reminds me that, her father woke up at three o'clock in the morning and would eat potatoes and yams and those things because what did he do? He, he farmed. So there was no going home for lunch. There was no stopping for a lunch break. You know, it was much more uh, agrarian, right? If if I said that correctly, like, right. It was more about agriculture. And so there was no break, right? They weren't sedentary. They weren't sedentary. They weren't sitting all day long. We yeah, are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like right. So they were working all day and they needed that heavy meal because that was the one meal until that nighttime meal at seven, eight o'clock, right when the sun went down. We're not living that way anymore. So we it's to our benefit to reevaluate what we're eating um and how we connect it to, oh, this is what my people eat. So this is what I eat. Because our people, we're no longer doing what our people did. Right. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we've got to adjust the way we're eating. Um, and the photos will show it too. If you have the photos of our, of your elders, you'll see normally, even if they were husky and thick, they were solid, you know, they mm-hmm. were rarely obese, you, you know, and that's because they were toiling. So we, we, we aren't. Most of us <laughs> aren't. And so our, our diet needs to adjust as well, accordingly as well. Um, I know we were talking about access, um, but I, I wanted to also touch on the idea within reproductive, reproductive health and not just fibroids, but reproductive health in general, um, estrogen mm-hmm. and progest- progesterone my mouth isn't working today, progesterone, and just how important it is. I'm not going to go deep into it because that's not my domain, but take note, understand the difference between those two hormones. When you go to your physician and they do blood work, ask what your estrogen levels are, ask what your progesterone levels are so that you know whether they are within range or out of range. Um that's important.
0: Yeah. 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 I think it's FSH and L L H you see? And it's all acronyms that none of us understand. So like <laughs> not, not access, but when you are there, it's understanding what's happening. Don't let the them just talk to you um in acronyms and weird words that you don't understand. Have them explain what that means because it's good for you to know like how can you address anything that's going on with your reproductive health if you don't even understand what needs to happen right or what's going on inside of your body um the other thing i I wanted to like point out like you said like um precious about um you said i'm sorry i had to pick up a cord. you said that uh um like 15 years ago we were talking about cultural Competency, and I remember that. I'm ashamed to admit. I remember that. (laughs) I remember that it was that. Those are the words, like cultural competency, and they we still use that word, but the more popular term now is like health equity. And I was like doing like I was like, let me do a quick search. Like a generation is about fifteen to twenty years. Mm -hmm. So we're basically saying like you know it's been a generation, and we're still trying to figure out how people are. Able to serve the communities that they do in a way that is culturally competent because the cultural competence feeds the equity, right? So, if you are not representative of the community you serve, yeah, it's going to be a lot harder because you can't relate to them. You're not, you know, whatever you're coming up with is not resonating with them. No matter how many focus groups and things that you do. You know that's fine you know people will attend but like if you're still not getting like a return on investment then it means that you're not necessarily connecting the connection is not there so you know i am all for like community health centers that are you know a product of the community so um when we talk about like things that are affecting black and brown women's health it's really having The you know there are definitely groups and organizations that focus right on this. So it's about these centers, like partner up with these groups that you know where this is their focus, where they can you know create programs or you know certain events and activities that get people like excited about learning about their health, so that we can change um, and reverse some of these negative statistics, health statistics that we do have for people who are melanin down. Um, so I just want to say, it's insane, I Gener- and it, it's not just a gen. I'm just using like that one point about cultural competency, it's generations, it's hundreds of years later, and we're still fussing about the same things. So, that means there's a little bit of insanity there. It's like you're doing the same thing and getting the same results. So, something has to shift. It means that you we have to take control of our own health so that we can control the outcomes. I'm just
2: gonna leave that right there. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think the idea of integrative another term, right? So this is like write these terms down, look them up, understand what they mean to you and for your family um and your community. But the idea of integrative health, you know, that is a buzzword right now in healthcare. Um, And really, I mean, integrative, right? That's bringing things together, right? Integrating. Um, But what is it integrating? It's taking, um, and we've touched on it before, it's taking traditional medicine or allopathic medicine um, and mixing it with um, some more natural homeopathic approaches to medicine. Um, It's important. Because there is no one, as you as you're pointing out, Deidre, there is no one fix. There is no one model that works for everyone. That just like there is no one drug that's going to uh, mitigate your health problems. Um, number one, even even a medication that works for you at thirty, let's say for hypertension, it doesn't work at forty. You'll have to change the doses. You'll need to retitrate in some way. Um, you may experience side effects that you didn't experience, you know, when you first started on that medication. Everything, because things are constantly changing and ebbing and flowing. The best approach is to understand the value us as healthcare providers and also recipients. Us as recipients, because we happen to be in both arena. It's important to understand how fluid. Things need to be in order for you to find your like to find your stride, your health stride, if, if I might say. Um, there's always a balance, and you, we're constantly being challenged to strike that balance, right? Um, kind of, if you think about a seesaw, it's like we're constantly kind of figuring out. Well, I want to have the good foods that remind me of home, but I know that. I need to do something to counter the effects of those foods if I am going to take them in. Right. So if you're going to stick with those foods, what do you need to do on the other side? How do you need how do you balance that? Do you exercise more? Do you, you know, integrate more abdominal stretching and work in that area because, you know, it weighs you down and makes you bulky there? Um, Do you need to increase your fiber? Because you know, those yams and all of that heavy, heavy food tends to make you stuffed up, get you stuffed up. You figure out the balance for you. That's how you can personalize integrative care. But as far as health systems, you want a system that is not just going to tell you that you need meds and surgery to fix all your problems. Because cutting off all your body parts and numbing the rest that are left is not going to give you the quality of life that you want. And that's, that's, mm-hmm. this true health lie, right? That's my truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And
0: you know, and I would say like, you know, this is, it, this is kind of touching on a conversation I had on the Masters of Health show, um, mm-hmm. uh, past Thursday with a, a health coach. And she good. what she was talking about. Oh, thank you. And she was talking about um, how she actually works with um, radiologists and doctors to help. Like, or was, I think this was specifically a, a surgeon. And you know, it, it's so interesting. Like the amount of things that she sees. Like when it comes to like radiology and scans, and what what you see from the scan of what's happening with your bones, like your musculoskeletal system, and how like different health problems will weigh on that. So she helps with um, she helps uh, patients like get to the weight that they need to be if they do decide to do the surgery route, you know, for whatever the ailment is. She helps them get their weight to the appropriate and sometimes lower to the appropriate size. So I thought that was amazing. Um, and so imagine, you know, you kind of changing your lifestyle if you're at that point where you're like needing to have surgery. But like, you know, you change your eating habits, you change your lifestyle and you literally kind of moonwalk away from even maybe needing the surgery or needing to to do something because you've changed your life. We know like there are many individuals um, high profile that talk about like, you know, they kind of just even like a move to plant based has shifted things. Um, and so there's definitely, um, you know, research out there. Um, When it comes to, like, reproductive health and, like, shifting, like, your lifestyle, um, eating habits and the things that you do. So, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we are reaching, I think we've reached, like, the hour mark. And, unfortunately, we weren't able to be joined by um, Dr. Ali. But we are going to reschedule because, you know, this is definitely a conversation we want to have. But I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation on fibroids and we'll put some more information in the chat. Um, Definitely put information on like what it is, who's at risk and like different things that you can do to address them. If you know, whether you're going the uh, modern medicine route or whether you're going with more natural, like there's definitely things that you can do to address it. Um, The other part is um, we're going to, like I said, we're going to reschedule uh, with Dr. Ali, because I really want all of you to hear about her sovereign organization and the things that they do globally. Um, there's going to be a lot of awesome things to come. Um, so we didn't really touch on like the high mortality and morbidity. Let's we're going to save that treat for later when we have that discussion with Dr. Ali because it'll be really awesome to think about like you know globally versus what's happening here in the states and like you know if there's any similarities. Um, one thing that I noticed, like, even from the Masters of Health show, you know, um, she, Dr. Ali does a lot in the, on the continent over in Africa. She's um, have, she's actually based in The Gambia, but they do a lot of work in some of the other countries um, in West Africa specifically. And not just West, West Africa. She moves, she's like branching out for Asia and all these different places where they're melanin dominant people. So I think what she's doing is amazing. Um, um but I had a conversation with a Masters of Health interviewee uh, several weeks ago, and she was explaining how, like, the diet um, in a lot of West African countries is now mirroring the um, sad diet, the standard American diet. So they're seeing a lot of the same comorbidities that we see here in African Americans. So it'll be really interesting to like hear that, especially since we're seeing like you know the women who are more susceptible. Um, when it comes to race, it's black women, but also women who are more susceptible to fibroids are women who are overweight. So being that we're seeing like, we know obesity stems from the nutrition and the diet. So let's see like, you know, what, what's happening um, on that, on the other side of the globe. So thank you for joining us, you know, stay tuned for more episodes. We will be back next week because we're going to take a break for Labor Day, but we'll be back The weekend before Labor Day will be here on Sunday, the 29th. Make sure you join us at 11 a.m. We will be uh, joined by another guest host, Dr. Kadisha Nicholas, who is um, um, out of Florida, South Florida. And she kind of moves back and forth between the North and the South. And she is um, a public health expert um, in her field. And she's going to be talking with us about advocacy in maternal health. So we've had all these conversations about maternal health, but what do we do to advocate? How can we advocate for ourselves? So join us next time on True Health Live at home. Well. Thank you for joining us here at True Health Live. Remember to like, save, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment and send an email if there's a topic if you want to discuss. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at True Health Live. You can also listen on DeidreSully.com. If there's a topic you'd like to discuss or hear, you can send an email to truehealthlive at gmail.com. See you next
2: time.